This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is your one stop for any kind of displaying or framing needs you may have. Uh, they have an excellent selection. They have stuff at Frame Nation you're not going to find anywhere else. Uh, some stuff that, you know, very traditional, museum quality stuff. They also have some really, you know, awesome off the wall type of stuff. Uh, I really love the, the acrylic frames that they have. Um, they, they're, I think they're acrylic. They look like they're acrylic, but they're bright colors, translucent. They look really amazing. Um, you know, and you can get something that's not going to overshadow what you're trying to display, whether it's family photos, you know, high dollar art. Uh, maybe it's just something you found in your attic you want to display. Go down to Frame Nation. You can find out more information at framenation.net. You can also go to uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anywhere where you can follow somebody, you can follow Frame Nation. Or, or just head right on down to 11 South 15th Street. They're fantastic staff. would love to see you. Um, bring what you've got down there. They'll make sure you get exactly what you want and exactly what you need. Right? And when you go into Frame Nation, tell them you heard about it on History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. And uh, go down to Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I hope you're enjoying it every, every second of it. Um, this is actually the first episode of the second year of History Replays Today. And that's very exciting to me. It's also the second part of the best of the first year. Uh, the last episode, I had uh, the 10 through 6 on my favorite list of the top 10 episodes. Uh, this episode is going to actually be five through one, right? So uh, my top five favorite from the last year. Again, the most recent, you know, three, four episodes didn't really count. Um, but no, let me know what you think about this. Uh, you can let me know on Facebook, on Tumblr, History Replays Today, on Twitter, at History Replays, uh, Jeff Major, at historyreplaystoday.org. That's J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, also suggest a guest, uh, suggest a topic. I know coming up on the podcast, I'm going to have Ralph White. Uh, he's used to run the James River Park System, and uh, we're going to talk about the history of the park system and really the history of the river itself and kind of what it means to the city uh, and it's a pretty cool conversation, but um, if this is the first time you've ever listened to the podcast, it comes out on the 1st and the 15th of every month, uh, and it is uh, you know conversations with historians, authors, and you know just Richmonders that have really you know established some amazing stuff or been lived through some stuff like Ralph White. Um, I you know I, I do want to thank folks. Uh, I'd like to thank. Uh, because um, this, this episode is brought to you by Frame Nation, River City Sags. Um, and also, I want to thank Matthew. Uh, Matthew gave $10, donated $10 to support the podcast, and Patricia gave $100. Thank you guys very much. Really don't know, you know, it means a very great deal to me. And, and if you want to help keep this podcast free, help it keep it going, um, just like 
Matthew and Patricia, go ahead and go over to historyreplaystoday.org. You can click on the support button. Um, I really would appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm not trying to get rich off this, just trying to maintain, just trying to maintain the, the, the life, um, keep, keep the food on the table and whatnot. So, um, you know, just buy me a cup of coffee or pay for the gas it takes to, to go, to go talk to some of these folks. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, also, oh yeah, uh, they're all free, you know, so they are, as of now they're free and, you know, if you donate, we can keep them free and the, you know, they're all free. Every back episode is on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, historyreplacetoday.org or really wherever you're listening to this. Um, but because this is my top five favorite, I am going to have uh, a little bit longer snippet. So go ahead and get right to it here. Uh, the, the number five on my favorite list. Uh, it was actually a conversation um, that I had with uh, John O'Connor, uh, who's a sports writer for the Richmond Times Dispatch. Uh, the whole episode was a special baseball episode, and I actually talked to um, Guy Kinman and uh, Betty Dementi on that episode as well, which is, uh, which is a rare thing to have three guests on a history replays today. Uh, but they had really cool stories to tell, so so I did that. And uh, you know, the the diamond is a really cool story. It's a really cool history, baseball in, in Richmond, especially because so much history is being made right now, whether, you know, 50 years from now, we're talking about a, a new stadium in the bottom, a new stadium on the, on the boulevard, or 50 years from now, we might still be talking about what we're going to do with the diamond or frankly, how we're going to get a professional team here. Cause we talked about building a new stadium for too long and all the teams left. Um, but this history is happening. So, um, this little snippet of the conversation, um, I was actually talking to him about uh, what came before the diamond, um, Parker Field, uh, and the diamond replaced that. And, and you know, you know, when the diamond was built, keep in mind um, it was a, a jewel, right? It was uh, one of the one of the best stadiums in the International League. And you know, in this little snippet, you'll hear that you know it didn't stay a jewel for in in, in people's minds, anyways, uh, for very long. Had some issues, but. Um, you know, Parker Field came before it, so let's hear from John O'Connor. Is there fanfare, or I mean, were people happy to see it go, or with people the... were happy to see it go? There, there wasn't as much um, sense of nostalgia back then. We, we were very interested in something new and different because Parker Field had been there for so long, and it was in disrepair, and it's probably the worst park in the International League. So people were very interested in seeing something new and different. And when the diamond was built, it was the, the best minor league ballpark in the nation. It was. No question about it. It, it was built very much uh, in the mode of maybe how the old parks were in Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, big concrete monsters. Mm -hmm. And that's what the diamond is on the minor league level. And it was viewed as a very, very up-to-date, uh, modern, wonderful minor league park huh which uh just seems to, it just looks like an overpass it things changed tremendously in regard to attitudes about ballparks with camden yards in baltimore which was early 90s mid 90s mm -hmm. i mean at that point people were looking for more of a throwback appearance and a comfortable look uh, when the diamond was built uh, that wasn't under consideration sure and the, I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that that the diamond as well comes in with the, the amenities because I guess like looking at pictures, um, which was actually funny. I was looking at them last night about of Parker Field with the 
the concessions, mm -hmm. um, and it, it looked like it was just like a trailer. It was, I think, it was called like Richmond Concessions or something That's like exactly that. Exactly right. It That's was exactly right. Not uh, even a name of any. It was a bare bones operation. Uh, the Diamond had luxury suites. That was something new and different for Richmond. It had a fountain as you walked up those steps. That was something new and different. And is it had a there's restaurant? Not, there's not a fountain now, is there? It's a funny story about that fountain. Okay. <laughs> As you, uh, part of the compromise in the naming of the diamond, so many people wanted to call it Parker Field or recognize Dr. Parker, for whom the Parker Field was named, a, a local doctor who did great things for the Richmond area. So rather than name the entire facility the diamond, the people who uh, were in charge determined that there would be a large fountain as you walked up the steps, and that would be dedicated to Dr. Parker. Nice touch. Yeah. There was a problem, though. Because of the way the diamond sits and the, and the way the fountain was elevated on those steps, whenever the wind blew a little bit, it blew a lot in that area. And if you were walking past the fountain, you got soaked. <laughs> it was one of several flaws with the diamond. So, uh, and ultimately they also had problem with people throwing things in the fountain and dipping their hands in and splashing on people. Uh, sure, beer plus water seems like a bad idea. The fountain was uh, eventually eliminated and it is now covered and that is the place where the Richmond Flying Squirrels have their bands play pre-game. Uh, it's, it's the bandstand now. Yeah. It used to be a fountain. Wow. That was a fountain. With, uh, I mean, Decorated or just, I mean, it was like an ornate fountain? It was. Or? It okay. was ornate. Um, and as I said, it spewed water straight up when it was not windy, but because it was elevated and there was a so, so sort of a, a tunnel uh, going out to the field. Sure. Uh, whenever that wind blew, people got soaked. <laughs> Which uh, brings me to another flaw. If you walk up the steps at the Diamond and past what was the fountain and what is now the bandstand, uh, there are blue coverings uh, that prevent you from really looking out at the field. Um, when the diamond was designed, the idea was to come up those steps and see the field, and that would be your first glimpse of this gorgeous green field. Well, again, that was good, but not very uh, good planning, because first night of the first game, we discovered that the sun set right down oh, behind no. the boulevard and as the catcher threw the ball back to the pitcher he'd have to shield himself trying to see where the ball was right so immediately they had to hang curtains there uh, that first year and eventually they just built partitions there that uh, sort of eliminated that grand view you were supposed to get Thank you, John O'Connor. And again, go back and listen to that whole episode. There's some really cool stuff uh, that uh, uh, Betty Dementi tells. I still tell that story all the time um, to different people. But, um, you know, hopefully that grand view is we're looking towards is going to be a new stadium and someplace we can all kind of come together and make a decision. Um, let's make a decision on, on what we're going to do with baseball here in Richmond. Um, but the next one. Number four on my list is when I talked to Todd Chavez, who's the general manager at the Bird Theater and has been there for quite some time now. You know, I feel like I learned a great deal uh, about the Bird when I had the conversation, really about a place that 
you know, had been to so many times and you get to where you think, yeah, I know a lot about this place. And you talk to somebody like Todd and you realize you didn't know much of anything. Um, also doing the podcast, you know, I get the advantage of, of taking tours of a lot of these places. You know, he took me on the uh, projection booth down in the basement, right? We talk about, um, you know, on the other parts of the episode uh, about the, the natural spring that's in the basement, some of the myths that go along with that natural spring. And I also really get the opportunity to sit down and talk to someone like Todd, who has been doing his job for a very long time. He's been at the bird for a very long time, yet he's way too excited about the stuff that's going on there. And I love it. I love the fact that he's still excited. Um, you can hear in his voice that he loves what he's talking about. He loves the movie theater. Um, and you know, come on the bird. It's just so daggone Richmond. Um, it was hard to choose a snippet because he, he kind of, he went off on some really amazing stuff here uh, on that episode. Um, but this little bit is about when the bird actually opened. Nowadays, you know, <clears throat> we go to the movies most of the time in a big, like, cinder block box with, uh, you know, neon on the front of it. Well, I mean, that's true. Was, the, uh, was, this out of, was this out of character for, you know, I know the, um, at least the Lowe's Theater has that deco, Art Deco style, um, but, I mean, would have other theaters been, well, look, been this exquisite? I think it's very important that we look at the time period. Yeah. Beginning of the Sound Age, 1927. Right. Construction of the Bird Theater, 1928. Beginning of the Great Depression with the stock market crash, 1929. Right. So, it probably wasn't entirely out of character, but it was... They might not have even realized it at the time. It was sort of the last gasp of what was going to become a bygone age. Sure. There's a couple of factors determining that. One of them, of course, is, you know... Um, you know... I mean, just monetarily, obviously, there was this huge... Fine. I mean, obviously, if the theater had been delayed to 1929, it probably wouldn't have been built at all. Right. It might have even gotten part of the way through construction and so forth. Um, as it was, because we came right on the brink of the sound age, one of the hallmarks of a... I, I've always felt of what the bird actually is and position it holds in history is the fact that when the doors opened on day one, it had a state-of-the-art sound system, Vitaphone sound system, and the Wurlitzer Theater Organ for silent films, both in the building at the same time. Sure. That, that was pretty unusual. There were plenty of theaters between 27 and 28 which had added sound systems. Right. Uh, and and I have, I've tried to be very careful, and I've been misquoted many times as saying that the Bird Theater was the first theater to have sound enrichment. It absolutely was not. But we're pretty sure that it was the first theater in the state of Virginia to be open its doors on day one with a sound system. Right, to be built with a sound yeah, system. Yeah, to be built with a sound system okay. from the, from the get-go. Because you've got to realize that even in 1928, the traditional movie moguls thought that this sound thing might well be a fad. They sure. honestly thought people were going to get bored with it. They were going to go back to making silent movies. And as a matter of fact, the movie that was shown here on opening night, Waterfront, not to be confused with Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront with right. Marlon Brando. Waterfront was actually shot as a silent movie. And then they went back and they added sound effects and music to parts of it. Not synchronized dialogue, but sound effects and music to sort of capitalize on the new right. sound fad. 
And so you were showing me that they were playing, basically playing records. Right. I mean, now, Abner Long, when I was a union projectionist, and Abner Long was the oldest member of our local at, like, I think he was 81 or 82 at the time, and I was the youngest member. Um, and, and so I, how I long have you, when did you start being a projectionist? Well, I, that was my first paying job when I was 16. Okay, fantastic. So You're about um, 21 now? You, you look. You, you look at. So. <laughs> That's right. I got a painting somewhere getting old. For right. Me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just. I just turned forty-eight. So okay. I'm on. I'm. I'm. I'm well on my way to fifty. I got two more years, and I'm at that half-century mark. The uh, but Adner, when he was the oldest, and I was the youngest member of the projections local. I asked him one time about the. It's like so. How did you get the sound? to synchronize between the record and the film. I was expecting that it was, and, and truthfully, I'm sure that there was a starting point yeah. for both ones. In fact, I've researched it since then. There was a framing experiment. But I, I thought that maybe there was some sort of fine-tuning that you were allowed to, you know, to keep it synced up. And he sort of shrugged and said, well, if it looked right, you left it alone. And if it didn't, you sort of reached down with your toe and you tapped the <laughs> tone arm on the record until it seemed like it was in the right place. That's great. So it wasn't exactly high technology. But The Bird was actually one of the first uh, theaters to experiment with the this newfangled Western electric sound system, which we're pretty sure was in here probably within the first year or two that The Bird was open where they were actually going to put the soundtrack on the film itself. Clearly, that wasn't going to work. Uh, of course, that actually became the standard right, uh, by, sure. which, by which movie soundtracks were done for years years and years after that. Sure. Um, but, yeah, the whole dynamic, we, we, we've sort of got a feel, but to get back, you were talking about, you know, would this have been a busy place? Would, I think it's important to place things within context not just of the time period, you know, relationship to the Great Depression, but also what movie theaters meant to people, the average person. This would have been the average family's, average person's only night out on the town. I mean, mm-hmm. this theater, you know, live theater was going to be out of their range. Um, it's the crowd that certainly would have gone to vaudeville, but vaudeville really was already dead right. at the point that the Bird Theater uh, was was built. So. Um, but we've got to realize, for news, you had newspapers, and you certainly had the radio. But if you wanted to see moving images of things that happened sure. outside of your own life, you wanted to see men preparing for war, Olympic athletes preparing to compete against each other, the only place that you would see it would be in a movie theater. We didn't have television; wasn't an issue. You know, wasn't part of the the spectrum yet. And right. Certainly, we're you know not even thinking about things like the internet. So this is where you saw not just your Hollywood entertainment, although that was certainly a big part of the picture, but travel logs, newsreels. These sure. were the places where people came to see the things that happened outside of the boundaries of their own lives. Um, and that's, you know, obviously that's not the case anymore. Sure. This is the reason it's like... This is the reason that we've sort of compartmentalized movies. Oh, yeah, you go down to the local multiplex and so forth. But in the time period that the Bird Theater was built, Marcus Lowe of the Lowe's Theater chain was famous for saying, we don't sell tickets to movies, we sell tickets to movie theaters. What Marcus Lowe and the other people in the industry understood at the time was that you had to be a showman all the time, that the show began on the sidewalk, that the building was supposed to be something grand and exciting. It was something that was supposed to look old even when it was new. It was supposed to recall that 
um, that classic European theater aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the design. And I think that's part of the reason that even in the now that there are so many other media options available to us that the the bird has survived because um, I'd like to think that we've never forgotten how to be showman first and right. movie exhibitor second. Um, that the way that you present a movie is every bit as important as having it at an affordable price and being able to show it reasonably close to uh, its first release. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. You know, people all the time are like, well, you could charge more for the bird theater. I mean, you're still so much less than the first run. I'm not competing with the first run theaters. I'm competing with Netflix. I'm competing right. with Xfinity On Demand. Mm -hmm. um, Redbox the, and the, the whole... Yeah, exactly. The first run theaters are so far off of my marketplace, they might as well not exist in my business model. Right. Um, and for the long-term restoration goals of the, the Bird Theater and the Bird Theater Foundation, I'd rather have 500 people through the door at $2 a head than 250 at $4 a head. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think the, you know, the organ, I mean, the whole thing is like, I mean, that's that, that show yeah. is, and it's, it's really, uh, I mean, you know, whenever I talk to someone who's, you know, just moved to the area, it's like, you know, what should we... Like you, you got especially around Christmas time. You have to go see the organ come up. The, you know, the I mean that uh, the trailer on the on the front of the movie. I mean, everybody yeah. knows the words, the whole thing. It's uh, I mean, it's it's Richmond, yeah. right? I mean, that's not. And that's the thing. I, I think the thing, the thing that's exciting, the thing that excites me about listening to people talk about the Bird Theater is that they don't talk about it in an abstract sense. They don't say, oh, this is this old theater that you need to go see. They talk about, I remember when I right. took my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. I mean, we're multi-generational now. We have people that are bringing their grandkids to the theater now that when they were dating, sure. they came to the Bird Theater and sat in the balcony. I mean, that that's the sort of, of integration with the community that has kept the Bird vital. Because in the end... Um, I can talk. I can talk about all of the textual details inside. I can tell you about the plaster work um, and the the family that did it, and the the sons of the sons that came and did some repair work years ago. Uh, and I can tell you about the paintings which were done in the studio in New York and brought in and attached to the walls and the Czechoslovakian crystal. But all of that is just stuff. To me, what's most exciting about the Bird Theater is the fact that it is doing today exactly what it was designed to do 85 years ago. Right. It's not a dusty relic in a museum case. It's not something you look at and go, oh, isn't that quaint? That's the way it used to be. We're still doing it. Right. We are still doing, it's like, and, and I said this the other night, we had a church group in here. Um, we have a church that meets regularly at the Bird now, and when I first signed that contract, I thought, ah, oh, well, here's the first. You know, I bet there's never been a church that met at the Bird. I was wrong. In the 1940s, the congregation of Grace Baptist Church, their building burned to the ground. In the two years that it took to rebuild their building, they met here. Thank you very much, Todd. That was really awesome. And uh, again, go listen to that whole episode. The Richmond Movie Palace is pretty fantastic. Um, and again, it's a huge point, I think, that um, the, the Bird episode um, and the baseball episode. Um, I mean, both of them, there's, 
it's it's a very important part for you know everyone to me that's you know is studying history um, to remember we're still making history, right? This is one of the reasons why it's interesting, right? We really need to know to find out who we are. We need to find out you know what story we're in and what part of that story that we're actually playing, right? So I think that's all very very important. Uh, but but number three on the on the podcast uh this is actually one of the folks that you know inspired me got me going on hosting the podcast here and putting the producing it and putting the whole thing together it's when i talked with mike gorman who's uh, a historian at the uh, national park service um the richmond national battlefield park service um and and this is the this was the conversation i actually did two episodes with him one about uh you know civil war life in richmond and also this one, which is uh, Lincoln and Richmond, um, which was super interesting. Um, one of the cooler things about this, I think, is it's very important that we often think that you know historians know everything about history. They don't. Um, this is a great example. Uh, you know, he starts out actually talking about uh, you know how scant some of the some of the you know the actual evidence we have is. Um, and, and somewhat criticizing uh, Admiral David Porter, who, who was li- with Lincoln when he came into Richmond and, you know, how, you know, questionable or, or not reliable some of his accounts are. Um, and as Mike says, the guy who should be the most reliable, not always that reliable. If you really, you can't just take everything at face value. Um, but this is not about actually Lincoln and Richmond, this snippet. This is actually about their trip up the river, right? And it's also a really good example of, you know, things that you can't, can't make up. Um, it's almost, uh, you know, their trip up the river almost seems like it would be a really good slapstick movie with, um, you know, Will Ferrell and, uh, you know, I don't even know what, you know, I don't know, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey could play Lincoln, um, in this, uh, comedy, um, as they come up the river, but they ended up working it out and, Let's go ahead and hear Mike Gorman. Porter, whose accounts you have to kind of take with a grain of salt, because he fancied himself a novelist after the war, uh, said that this Aren't became... we all? Well, Aren't we all? It's a problem. He, yeah. because he's, he, he should be my most reliable source on this, but instead he's one of my least. Uh, he, he had a funny story that, that is probably apocryphal, but... Uh, but it illustrates the problem of now the president's aboard your boat, which is uh, that the president came aboard and he only had this this small bed for him, and the president, of course, is a very tall man, and so the president, you know, took it all in stride and and slept in this bed. His you know feet were probably dangling over the side, and uh, so the next day while they were while they were doing whatever they were doing, Porter ordered the carp- the ship's carpenter to get to work and and uh, and extend the extend the bed. Yeah. And so uh, uh, the the president uh, then quipped later uh, after he'd slept in this this new bed. Uh, uh, My God, Porter, I, I have shrunk overnight. This is you know, or something to the to that effect. You know, yeah. Uh, of course, he's he's you know having a joke at himself, but you know it does it does illustrate the problem. We weren't anticipating putting up the president and his son aboard the Malvern, and now that's that's something that has to happen. So when we consider it just from a logistical and expense related venue. I tend to I tend to believe that uh, that, uh, that that Mary's departure was was probably uh, her own instigation. Sure, 
because we're talking about money being spent to transfer the, the president over and the River Queen sent up to Washington. Uh, you know, it must have been something that was either mutually agreed on or she said, uh, she said, I've got to go. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd be like, no, just stay here and, you know. So that, that's sort of my read on that. Hmm. Um, so, and when they, uh, he's going to come up the river, I mean, I guess first of all, like just kind of painting the scene, I mean, is it, are they, w- what time of day are they coming? I guess I'm assuming morning, right? Uh, actually, no. The, the, the accounts suggest it was a little afternoon uh, when, they, when okay. they got to Drury's Bluff. So they must have left in the morning from City Point. But uh, Porter had, been, had had his fleet out there all night long, uh, sweeping the, the river for mines. And that's, and again, we go to this expense. Just imagine, you know, here's a, what, what on, on any level has to be from a pretty impetuous decision. We're going to go to, go to Richmond. So things have to happen. Sure. You know, the, the, the river has to be cleared of mines. All the you know, p- people have to assemble to, to make this possible. Uh, who's going to guard the president? What, you know, this whole plan has to be you know hacked together here in just a few hours. Sure. Well, uh, people complain about like the president coming to Richmond and shutting down you know sixty four or whatever as he comes through, and you can only imagine there's no mines on sixty four. So. No mines on sixty four. No. Uh, no <laughs> instructions. No instructions in the in, in on sixty four. Um, and that and that's sort of weird because uh, you know Admiral Porter certainly knew that there were obstructions at Drury's Bluff, but either his fleet couldn't get get that far overnight, and they worked all night to make this happen, um, or what, I don't know, but, but when the fleet approached Drury's Bluff, they encountered what you'd expect, which is the Confederates had, since 1862, had vessels sunk across the, the channel so that you couldn't pass it. Well, oops. Yeah. <laughs> And so now this this grand naval flotilla that Porter envisioned, you know, driving up the James River, flags, pennants flying, you know, guns going off to signal the, the arrival of the President of the United States, is dead in the water, literally. And so, at this point, you know, the plan is has evaporated. And what's remarkable to me is that somebody said, "Go, yeah, keep going." Now, whether that's Porter or Lincoln or Tad. Who knows? I, I don't know. Um, but this is now, you know, you're realizing it's going to take some time to get over these these instructions. Yeah. Uh, you know, how much time do we really want to dedicate to this? Well, they come up, somebody comes up with a plan, Porter probably did, which was, uh, okay, well, we've got this steamboat, this launch that comes off the Mallory, so the, the Admiral's barge. Okay. And we'll put that in the river and drive it over. The because you know, it draws with so much less water than say the, the USS Malvern or the River Queen, we'll drive it over the obstructions. But he's still got a problem, which is we've swept the river of mines up to this point, but there's still mines beyond Drury's Bluff, between Drury's Bluff and Richmond. So the thinking is fine. We're going to put the the steam launch in the river, but then we're going to have it tow a rowboat in which we'll place the president and Tad. So that if the steam launch hits a mine. It will blow up, and not the present. It's a great plan. Great. <laughs> well, you're seeing improv here already. Yeah. Right. So, especially, I'm sure the guys that were thinking it was a great plan were the guys that were driving that barge. Yeah. They were like, wait, hold on. Well, this also this also is going to bear fruit too, which is it's not like you know how many sailors and marines are aboard the Malvern, right? Got plenty of them. How many now can fit on this? Sure. Very few. So here we are now in this this barge in this rowboat <coughs> as they go up the river. 
And apparently, although I'm starting to have some doubts about this, apparently as they're going up, they see coming down this vessel coming from Richmond and it's run aground. And as they get closer, they can see the guy on the boat you know, hailing them. And as they get closer, they realize it's Admiral Farragut. You know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead fame. Well, this has got to be the height of embarrassment for Farragut, who thought he was going to make this big naval presentation. You know, I've driven the first boat down from Richmond. I presented to you, sir. Well, now he's running his boat aground. And Porter must have just been cracking up. Lincoln probably thought this was hilarious, as Farragut's having to ask for help from the other admiral in the U.S. Navy and... Uh, and the President of the United States. So, the steam launch then proceeds to try to help Farragut get off this, this uh, some people say it was a sandbar, others say it was uh, uh, bridge pilings there at Tree Hill. I like that one. Uh, but whatever happened, Porter's steam launch now becomes stuck. Sure. Against uh, either the pilings or the sandbar. So, essentially, the, the highest ranking officers in the, the two highest ranking officers in the U.S. Navy have now both both grounded, grounded their ships. It's the only two. Yeah. The only two admirals. Exactly. And Lincoln is probably thinking, this is why this is, this is, a, this is a disaster. Like, He's going to just be like, oh my God, this is, this isn't. But on the other hand, again, here's another opportunity. Somebody at that point says, we go. Right. Now, if I'm Porter, at this point, I'm going to try to talk Lincoln out of it. You know, like, this, this is, we, we can't, we can't guarantee your safety at this point. You know, let's, Let's go back down to Drury's Bluff and see if they've gotten over the the obstructions, um, you know, and proceed from there. No, somebody says go. I don't know who. Probably Lincoln. And so, to solve the problem, they leave the steam launch behind, cut loose the rowboat, transfer sailors aboard to row, and a few officers come along, along with Porter, and Lincoln is rowed. Up into the city in this in this rowboat, but this presents its own problems because nobody really knows where to land, and, and the obvious landing spot, which would be Rockets Landing, is not accessible, and it also is far away from the city. If you were if you were to ever do this, and actually in a boat, you'd see it. when you approach Rockets Landing, the city looks like it's five miles away. Right. Uh, say nothing of the fact that if you were in a rowboat, the dock would be about five feet above your head. So. Rocket's Landing wouldn't even consider it. And when Porter writes his account, he doesn't even mention seeing it. It doesn't even look like a good place to put in to him. So they're looking for some, you know, you got a robot. You're looking for some place to put in, to actually, you know, ground the, you know, the boat and get out. And so they keep on rowing. And as Porter says, he, he got up amongst the rocks in the rapids. Well, that's a clue. That means right there west of Mayo Bridge, where, right. the, where the rapids still are. And thereupon, the rowboat grounded again. And Lincoln makes some kind of joke to the effect that, you know, Porter, you're going to need the Army engineers to get you off of this sandbar. Right. Right. Bad joke to, to tell the Porter at this point, who's probably had about enough of this. Um, really, think about the frustration yeah. that he's got right now. And uh, so he says, no, we don't. And, you know, has the, has the sailors, you know, shove them off. And as he said, then we put in at the uh, most, the closest looking landing spot we could find, uh, which was a little sandbar. 
And that sandbar is no longer there, but it's a, it's kind of where the, the canal boats park, um, behind the flood wall where the, the on the Capitol Trail, sort of across from Bottoms Up Pizza. Um, I do like that a ton um, because, I mean, Mike knows about as much about Lincoln and Richmond as anyone you're going to find. Um, and he's still cloudy on some details, right? We don't know everything about everything. It's very important to always realize. Uh, but my second favorite conversation of the last year was with Bill Martin, who is the director of the Valentine Richmond History Center. Um, the reason that I really loved this conversation is because we went off topic so much. The topic was the history of the Valentine Richmond History Center. But every time we got off topic, it was way more interesting. It was some really, really amazing stuff. Um, kind of like this section where we were talking about the Wickham House, uh, which is part of the Valentine. Um, the Valentine actually started in the Wickham House, um, and it was built in 1812. We got you know, off topic and started talking about the War of 1812. There's a lost war. Um, so that whole time period, like you're saying, it's like the, the clothing and everything. Nobody, you know, well, and think that that and, exists. And, it, and, and yet, if you look at Richmond, during right. a period, we're at the center of all of it. I mean, we're, we are probably, we're one of the largest states, if not the largest state. Um, I think land-wise. Land-wise, but I think, but it's a population, I think we are, you know. Pretty you know, close, I think. It's pretty close, I, I'd have to look back and see. But, you know, you're looking at, Virginia was at its, its zenith in terms of political influence. You had all the presidents being elected from Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that in terms of political influence uh, and cultural influence, Virginia was at the center. And yet, you know, we we talk about, you know, we, the revolution didn't, I mean, it's not a big deal in Richmond. You know, the, we're, you know we love to, I mean, certainly it's the connection to, to St. John's Church and Patrick Henry. Sure. But I think we forget that Richmond at that point was not really much of a place. Right. The it's a little itty bitty little village. It's a little bitty village. And the reason that they're coming here is so that no one will find them. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not... It's not as if this is this giant place. I mean, sure. It just happens that St. John's Church is the largest building in the interior of the state that they can have a meeting. Right. Um, and, and, and can kind of escape up so that they can have a meeting. So it's not really until the capital moves right. uh, that Richmond is even a place. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and I think Richmonders, because of the, because of the high visibility of St. John's Church, and that if you ask someone when was Richmond's most prominent in sort of the national politics, the first time it was was really that early national period when you had Virginia providing leadership for the new country, sort of on the re on the on the ground, defining how are we going to deal with the issues related to slavery, what are the issues related to slave uh, to states' rights, you know, what's the role of the Supreme Court? You've got sure, John, John Marshall, Marshall yeah. you know deciding about judicial review. Those right. are kind of those are kind of things that are really important that are still being played out in many ways today that Virginia was at, and Richmond was at the center of that conversation. So I always think that we you know, I, while the Civil War is an important period, for Richmonders I think we have this opportunity and that's what in our new space, we don't do a lot of civil war here. You know, one of the things that we right. intentionally do in our programming is that there's a lot of civil war being done in really great ways with you know, the Virginia Historical Society, American Civil War Center, 
and Museum of Confederacy. And so I think we kind of, and the National Park Service. Um, so for us, you know, there, there are lots of other areas that we think are really interesting and maybe um, where we can provide some conversation around that could provide some interesting stuff for the future. So the early national period is one of those things is that, that we can actually talk to people about what it, how did slavery as an institution evolve during that period? What happens sure. when the international slave trade ends? Yeah. Um, and suddenly, you know, for Richmond, it's not about the international slave trade. It becomes, it, Richmond becomes the focal point of the internal slave trade. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 that's really, a, and that's and I think that I think that's kind of lost in the story, and so we have an opportunity to show the the shifting nature of slavery and and the life of the enslaved in Richmond and what that how that begins to change in the early part of the nineteenth century, and it's that beginning of uh, or the ending of Africans and the beginning of African Americans when people are actually born here. Yeah, and from other, well, and by the time, by, and really by the time you get to that point, the majority of the folks are being, are, are the majority of African Americans in Richmond are, have already been here for more, more probably more generations than um, most of the, the white population. Okay, and that's oh, wow. kind of, that, yeah, that's, that's, kind of, that's really wild because you've got multiple generations in the, that are that are here, and what you have are newer immigrants coming in in the years before the Civil War. So you've got German immigrants, you have German Jewish immigrants coming, you've got French Huguenot, you've got all these other people immigrating into Richmond, joining people that joining the enslaved who have been here for multiple generations. Right. That's wild. Um, and we we forget we forget that I think sometimes that that that. That the the years before the Civil War um, were periods of really pretty large migrations from from Europe into this country, mm -hmm. um, and we and, and I think that that that's a, the immigrant story. Yeah, absolutely. Is one that uh, is an opportunity for us both during this early national period. But in the years after the Civil War, I think you know we don't really think about the 1890s as much as I think we ought to. Right. Sure. And the 1890s were just kind of crazy, crazy time in Richmond with the the, the trolleys being expanded, mm -hmm. um, which sort of deconstructs the city. Yeah. You know, it spreads out. Everybody. It spreads, well, and, and it spreads out by by race, class, and occupation. Sure. So you know, there's that, I love folks that have this wonderful romance. Oh, if we could only bring the trolley back, but there were some unintended, just as there are unintended consequences for the construction of the interstate system. Sure. Right, which helps us kind of blow out the city one more time. Um, the trolley did the same thing. Yeah, and so people, what was that? What what happened with the trolley? There was this entire, incredibly dense urban core, and the moment that opportunity came to go to the country, mm -hmm. um, people began to separate by trolley line, and you could tell, you know, you could tell people, you could tell where people were born. From their their country of, of origin, by what neighborhood they ended up. So you had you know large Italian Catholic community ending up in, in you know Highland Park and Barton Heights, and sure, you know, and you could tell where they were working, and, and so you know the first monument goes up, you know, on Mine mm -hmm. Avenue. Right. Doesn't happen until you know thirty years after the war. Right. Right. Um, and 
we start constructing this alternative universe mm -hmm. of what Richmond, what the Civil War was about, um, what Richmond was about, that, and you know, and we begin to eliminate any kind of hints of what that past was like. And so, pretty early on, you have this, you know, we've got this great photograph in this collection of this giant landfill that um, is in Shaco Bottom. Oh, wow. And it's essentially located on 15th, the 15th Street Corridor. Yeah. Um, so that very early on, there are these attempts to, to begin to eliminate any sort of physical reminders of the slave trade. Right, right. Um, we did a total job of it with the construction of the I-95, you know, Richmond Petersburg Turnpike. Sure. But, you know, going back in now and trying to rediscover these pieces that, that you know, were, were, had been hidden for so long that are under, that are under pavement and under, you know, highways. Right. If you don't see it, it never happened. If you don't see it, it never happened. And so there are parts of Richmond that, that, that where we, or if you see it, it has to be true. And so you know, if you, the, the monuments really become this, this different way of, of, yeah. of constructing what we wanted to believe um, and about the war. Sure. And the causes of the war. I think that's really fascinating, you know, how and why we remember history. How do we do it? Right? It's often said the victors write history. But how and why do they write the specific history that they write? Right? They obviously believe it benefits them. Um, but they also have to continue winning. Right? Or others may come and rewrite that history. Um, to me, that's always going to be really fascinating. But now we've gotten to... My number one favorite episode that uh, I've done over this last year, um, and it is with Mark Greeno, who is the historian at the Virginia State Capitol. Um, and it's my favorite episode for uh, a few different reasons. First of all, I know I've told this story before, so I won't get too deep into it. Um, but it really was conversations with Mark Greeno at the at the Capitol, uh, and you know. Mike Gorman, um, that really inspired me to, to start the podcast, right? Having these really fascinating conversations and just thinking, I cannot be the only person that's interested in hearing this. Others have got to, to like this. Um, so hopefully you have over the last year and you will continue to like them. Um, and remember all of these episodes, they are all free online on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, you know, historyreplaystoday.org. Go check them out. And the, the snippet um, that I'm going to play is also kind of interesting because this will be the third version, um, all correct, of why folks were in Richmond for St. John's. You know, Bill just mentioned it. Patrick Henry talked about it earlier. And Mark will kind of allude to it as well. Um, but... And he is the historian of the capital. Um, and we really talk, start talking about why Williamsburg is the capital first. And, you know, why Richmond becomes the capital as well. Um, you know, why moving it around, what each place has a benefit. Um, and really just Richmond's birth as the capital of Virginia. Well, in fact, the war of the American Revolution was the immediate uh, incentive 
to get the General Assembly to act on relocating the capital. This was an idea that had been brought up from time to time before the revolution started. And what was on people's minds before the war was that the population of Virginia was moving westward, inland, right. and Williamsburg was very close to the coast and becoming increasingly less centrally located you know, for the greater population. And the other issue, which doesn't seem as important to us today, was that Williamsburg was not a port. It did not have navigable water running nearby it. It had to rely on Yorktown to the north uh, as sort of a port by osmosis. Right. Uh, and uh, if we could find an inland location situated on navigable water, that would be for trade and commerce and transportation a big plus. Sure. Uh, you know, today in the 21st century, uh, we might imagine the James River being their Interstate 64 or their Interstate 95 right, from right. our perspectives. So these ideas about having a more central government uh, and a more uh, useful location uh, for uh, transportation had been around and then when the American Revolution comes along you throw safety into the mix that we're not safe meeting right. in Williamsburg when you are fighting the British Empire with a navy that rules the waves and the water's right down, you know, the coast is not that far away. So uh, I think it was the threat of possible occupation that finally caused a majority sure. of the General Assembly to say, yeah, we do need to uh, uh, yeah. vote to go inland. That Terrible might be person. Thomas Jefferson yeah. calling in now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. That'd be excellent. I have some questions for him if, if he's available. I did, uh, I did. I already did actually interview Patrick Henry. <laughs> okay. So um, All right, I got which, some questions uh, for him, too. Yeah, which, which uh, you know, I appreciate your time. But he did come back from the dead, so that's kind of uh, yeah. going the extra mile. There. I understand. Um, it's actually funny. I've never even considered, like, because I know it was like Bacon's Rebellion burns Jamestown. But why the hell would they start and go in Williamsburg? It seems like a really strange place without well, any it, water there. It, it was at least uh, an improvement over Jamestown uh, because it's uh, it was called Middle Plantation, and it was on higher, drier, healthier ground. Uh, between the James River to the south and the York River to the north. And it did give you the opportunity to plan a capital community from scratch, essentially. Right. And uh, that's what the royal governor at the time did, was he said, well, I've got this blank slate. I can you know, plan out of town and uh, make it a very rational uh, arrangement for things. Sure. And so that was you know, appealing. And uh, it was certainly a step forward from uh, the tainted water of right. uh, Jamestown. So I guess it goes against the common, you know, you'd want water, but they're like, no, we want to get away from yeah, water. We want to get away from, from bad drinking water, uh, and uh, we would uh, hopefully rely on Kings Creek and Queens Creek with landings uh, on the Jamestown and Yorktown side of things to, you know, give us, you know, albeit more indirectly, uh, a water connection. Sure. And, and uh, I think that water connection maybe became more and more important to people as time went on, and as ships got bigger, right. uh, you know, the, the limitations of uh, Kings Creek and uh, Queens Creek landings became more evident. And also you have the silting problems that uh, were filling in those little channels. The salting problem? Silting. Silting. Yeah. Ah, okay. Silting up. And that's, that's really an ongoing problem with the James River Channel. They haven't dredged right. that sure. in their own lifetimes. And so it seems like Richmond would kind of be a no-brainer because what I think it's this is the farthest inland you can get out of the 13 colonies. Well, uh, it's a fall-line city, mm -hmm. and um, if you're coming up the James River, which I gather is the third largest estuary in the Chesapeake Bay, Richmond is as far upriver as you can get, and then you run into 
seven miles of class three white rod around. Right, right. And the the interesting thing about the actual move of the Capitol was who was behind it. And the lawmaker in the General Assembly who drafted a bill to relocate the city of government away from Williamsburg was none other than Thomas Jefferson. Right. And when he drafted the bill, if I remember correctly, he left the name of the replacement city blank so yeah. that, you know, the larger consensus could be created as long as they got out of Williamsburg and went west and, you know, found somewhere uh, suitably located, uh, that would be an improvement. Sure. And as it turns out, uh, they fell in the blank with Richmond, probably to the disappointment of Fredericksburg and Petersburg, right. who thought they might be in the running. But, you know, Richmond wins out. And no sooner does the bill get passed than Thomas Jefferson, who had just been uh, elected governor by the General Assembly of Virginia. Back in those days, the House and Senate did a joint ballot to choose governors uh, in those uh, revolutionary days. So uh, when it comes time to implement the decision in 1779 to move the capital, by the time the actual move takes place in the spring of 1780, it's Governor Jefferson who is overseeing the physical relocation right. from Williamsburg to Richmond, which is kind of interesting. Sure. And what is, I mean, Richmond's very small, right? I know it's like, with 600? Yeah, it was around 600, 650 people uh, at the time of the move. And, and Williamsburg had maybe 2,000 people okay, by comparison. Yeah. And, you know, the disadvantages to Richmond at first were that, well, there's there's no collection of public buildings ready and waiting for the executive and legislative and judicial functions. There's no public printer right. set up. Uh, they're not even on the regular mail route. Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, for couriers and that type of thing. So they had to get busy, you know, creating the infrastructure that was needed to support uh, the Virginia government. Sure. But it did have that greater centrality, and it did have that uh, access to navigable water which in peacetime, anyway, is a really good idea. Sure. And the seven miles of Whitewater Rapids that, you know, caused Richmond to be located where it was, not further upstream, not further below, but right at the rapids, that also gives you something very important in the 18th and 19th century, water power. Right. And if you want a grist mill or a sawmill or a uh, grain mill or you want some kind of ironworks, or you want a textile mill, or any kind of uh, you know major manufacturing capabilities. Water power is a definite plus. Sure. That was it. That was the end. That's the end of the top ten for the best of 2013-2014, the very first year of History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, the The next episode will be coming out um, on the fifteenth. Uh, and that will be brand new conversations with folks, all kinds of new content. Hopefully the this rehashed content was you know, something that you enjoyed. Uh, I kind of enjoyed doing it, going back through it. Let me know if you did. Let me know if you didn't. Uh, you can, again, do that on Facebook, on Tumblr, uh, at History Replays Today. Or you can check out Twitter, at History Replays. Go do it. Check it out. Do it. Love to hear your comments. You can also email me, Jeff Major, J E F F M A J E R, at historyreplaystoday.org. Support the podcast. Become a sponsor, just like River City Segs and, and Frame Nation. You can also you know, just donate to the podcast. Um, you can also just tell somebody. Right? Go down and, you know, next time you go to Chick fil A, tell the person behind the counter, hey, you should listen to 
History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast. And, and write a review. Write a review. Wherever you're listening to this, write a review about the podcast. Thank you very much, and uh, make it a great day.